Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. Must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, August 30th, 2023, the 952nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Back in the summer of 2020, back in the early stages of the very deadly pandemic, 
back when I was in Hollywood, California, and still on Instagram. I ran a poll one day asking the good people of Hollywood to make a very simple choice. I said, hey, if you walked outside and water was falling down on your head from outside, but the weather app on your phone said that it would be 85 and sunny all day, would you say that it was raining or would you go with the forecast on your phone? And you might think, hey, that is one crazy question. Of course, everybody would believe it's raining if water was falling from the sky onto their heads. Nothing could be more obvious. You'd have to be absolutely insane to trust the app on your phone over your own personal experience of something that you have experienced countless times in your life. But the reason I asked the question was to make people engage with the thought process that makes them constantly defer to authority and to the experts, to the television, to the main channels of information, rather than trusting their own experience, because that's what we were dealing with. People were so scared to disagree with anything that was coming to them from authority. And because people don't like to think of themselves and identify as liars, people who aren't brave and won't tell the truth in difficult situations, rather than standing up for what they knew to be right, they instead attempted to convince themselves that all that information coming from authority really was true. Because if they stopped trusting those authorities, they knew that they would get in trouble. And if they stopped trusting those authorities, they also had to wrestle with the question, if they're lying to me about this, what else have they lied to me about in the past? And once you start going through that, you find out that it's a lot. And some of those things that they have lied to you about and that you have believed have caused you to act in certain ways, to say and do things that you wouldn't have done unless you believed what you had been told, to treat people in a way that you wouldn't have treated them if you hadn't believed what you'd been told. And with that feeling comes a lot of guilt, because if you wouldn't have said and done those things and you wouldn't have treated people the way you treated them, you might be a better person right now. You might feel better about yourself. You might carry around less guilt and shame from past actions. And eventually you also realize that while you were trying to look like the good and smart and responsible people to all of those around you, you ended up just looking complicit in everything, like a liar and a fraud to the people who were really awake and aware of what was going on. Now, I know all this because I've experienced all of this, and I will probably continue to experience some amount of this for the rest of my life. And I think that most of us on some level, maybe some people more, some people less, but most of us do experience this regularly. And I think some amount of it is probably healthy. It's that thing that tells us, hey, we know that we did that thing the last time. It didn't work out right. It didn't make us look like good people. It didn't make us feel like good people. Let's go ahead and avoid that in the future if a similar situation ever arises. Now, while this recognition may sometimes lead to a sort of catharsis, it's not always the most fun and most comfortable feeling to have. I trusted something or someone I shouldn't have trusted. It made me believe and do and say a lot of things I shouldn't have done. I didn't treat people very well. 
That's not a nice feeling to have. And a lot of people to avoid that feeling will try to pretend that things are other than they are so that they don't have to admit that they were wrong about this thing that would then create all new avenues for guilt and shame and regret that they would eventually have to attempt to make up for. Now, speaking for myself, when that feeling arises in me, when I realize that I was wrong about something and start thinking about what being wrong about that thing made me do, made me say, made me believe, I often begin remembering almost immediately signs that I could have paid attention to that I instead avoided in order to continue in the direction I was going. And generally, as I contemplate that aspect, it often occurs to me that the mistake I made was once again in the direction of information derived from authoritative sources or from culture, from my peer group, that I preferenced and prioritized my own gut reaction, my instinct. And it was certainly never in the direction of what would make me the best person I could be. If your gut reaction and instincts are continuously leading you to make wrong choices on their own, then you are probably caught your whole life. Your whole belief system is probably caught in a total inversion within the false reality. And if that phrase sounds totally foreign to you, I would suggest going to my episode from June 23rd, 2023, The Informational Time Machine, and in that episode, you will understand what I'm talking about. It basically just means that you have drawn the wrong conclusions about everything in your life as a result of many things, but false information, influence, incentives, punishment, misleading, all of those things end up building up a false reality. And if you are fully invested in that false reality, you will essentially make exactly the wrong decision at all times because for you, everything is totally reversed. So I posed that question on Instagram in Hollywood, the fakest place on earth. And I can't remember the results of the poll. It doesn't matter. Again, the only point of Putting that idea forward as a question in a poll was to get people to engage that part of their thought process rather than me just stating it and them reacting however they would react. If you ask someone a question, they are more likely, I think, to engage with the thought process that would get them to the answer as opposed to just having a natural emotional response to a statement that someone else makes. Now, we are consistently told that our world is far too complicated to understand on our own. That's why we have to defer to the experts for everything, including relationship advice. There are experts that tell us whether or not we love the right people. Now we have experts that tell us whether or not we were born in the right bodies. We have experts that tell us the entire universe came from nothing 13.4 billion years ago because of math. The more complicated the world becomes, the more we need to rely on the experts for all the answers. We can't figure out anything on our own, and we can't just go around believing ourselves. So we defer to the experts on everything. Again, the question, if you went outside and water was falling down, sprinkling down upon you from the heavens, would you believe it was raining even if the app on your phone said that where you are 
it's 85 degrees and sunny. We have people because of authority who believed we were in the middle of the deadliest pandemic of all time, even though basically everyone who died died in a medical facility, a hospital, a nursing home, whatever. People weren't falling over in the streets as we were shown on video from China. People weren't turning up dead at home. We knew pretty early on that the people who were dying were primarily old people, average age like 75, four compounding comorbidities. We've had reports since then about 94% of COVID deaths being with COVID and not from COVID. Well, what does it mean to have COVID? You tested positive on a test run to create 90% plus false positives. Or you could just be diagnosed as likely COVID. And then, hey, you're a COVID death again. And the medical provider gets paid. People pretended we were in the worst pandemic of all time under those circumstances while knowing it and then supported masks and lockdowns and social distancing, even while knowing it didn't work. Why did they do that? Because they extracted their beliefs from authority and they supported those beliefs because of an incentive and punishment structure. And because they didn't want to feel like liars, they convinced themselves that all the things that they were saying that they were repeating were actually true. Not long after that, let's say a year later, people were reporting injuries after receiving the COVID vaccine. And we heard stories constantly about people dying suddenly and turning up dead in their homes. Many of us know people in our own lives who were negatively affected, harmed by the vaccines. Some of us know people who died suddenly. But now all of the people who told us that we were in the midst of the deadliest pandemic of all time, the people who would not leave us alone about masks and lockdowns and social distancing and vaccines and all of it, were telling us that the new variable that had been introduced and the new phenomenon we were witnessing that people were maimed, injured, dying suddenly was not a problem at all. And where did they get that belief? They got that belief from authority. They believed it because of an incentive and punishment structure and because now they had a personal stake in it. And once again, they told everyone else that the information they were receiving from reality and from their own senses could not be trusted because the authorities disagreed. Now, at that point, if you don't understand that a massive portion of this country lives in an entirely false reality, I don't know what to tell you. If you refuse to believe your own senses, the information you derive from reality and the word of other people, you know, to be honest and trustworthy who actually care about you. And instead, you trust the app on your phone or CNN.com or the experts. You live in a false reality. I mean, how much clearer could it be? You don't even trust the information from the reality you actually, at least physically, exist in. And this is not some insignificant phenomenon. This is placing one's full faith in the authoritative source and maintaining that faith no matter how many times the authoritative source proves wrong, no matter how many times the authoritative source embarrasses you, no matter how many times the authoritative source leads you to say and do things you will end up regretting. 
and treat people in ways that you will end up regretting. And they just keep holding on to the authoritative source. That is the only place from which trustworthy information can be derived. We must have the authoritative source. We cannot trust the information derived from our senses about reality, the empirical observable reality. And we cannot trust the words of those closest to us as they observe reality, as we attempt to help each other mutually understand this world we exist in, whatever it may be. Now, I bring this up to talk about how I try to analyze, digest, receive information from authority, the thought process I try to employ, particularly when my first impression of new information being received from authoritative sources is that something feels off. It doesn't feel like it tracks with my understanding of reality as it exists right now. It's not that I assume the thing's impossible, that it could never happen, or that I know everything. It's just the feeling, hey, you know, something just seems off about that. I'm going to maintain a little doubt. I'm going to exercise skepticism, maybe even extreme skepticism about the information I'm receiving until I can figure out how that piece of information actually does map onto reality. And if I can't figure out a way, then I'm going to continue to doubt that new information received from authority. And I will, as always, maintain skepticism about how I see reality. Maybe there is something in what I understand to be my personal map of reality that needs to be adjusted. Maybe something seems wrong about this information from an authoritative source because my understanding of the world is slightly off. But because I spend virtually all my time building that map and trying to understand it and checking things against it, I'm going to bias toward my understanding of the world rather than biasing toward this information received from an authoritative source because there's something I'm bumping up against. Something doesn't seem right, doesn't feel right. And it's worth noting that it's important to exercise this thought process, even when that information from the authoritative source is making you happy. Now, when I'm picking apart information, I think, what is this information made up of? What other things do I have to believe to accept this? Break something down into its elements. See what parts you actually know to be true. And if you reach the conclusion that you can't verify most of the elements you would have to verify to know that something was true, you should probably think about ignoring that thing completely. It doesn't mean you go around saying that thing is not true or that thing can't be true. It's just that it doesn't seem true now. And until you get more information that might explain some of those elements you can't verify then it would be crazy to put your full belief behind this information or go around telling other people or make important decisions in your life based on this information. You just keep it in a point of doubt. Information among other information, a possible but perhaps unlikely story about reality. It is totally okay, and in this day and age, probably totally necessary to doubt virtually every element of every story. Now, yesterday on the podcast, I briefly mentioned that Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, 
was, according to reports from last week, killed when his plane was shot down by Russian air defense systems. This is the BBC from last week. Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin presumed dead after Russian plane crash. Russian mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin was on the passenger list of a jet which crashed in Russia, killing all 10 people on board, Russia's Civil Aviation Authority says. Social media linked to the Wagner mercenary group says his private plane was shot down by Russian air defenses. Prigozhin died, quote, as a result of actions of traitors to Russia, end quote. The Gray Zone Telegram channel posted. Now, they spell it G-R-E-Y, so that is not Max Blumenthal's media site. Sounds like it's probably a knockoff Telegram channel trying to take advantage, or maybe BBC just has a typo in their article. Prigozhin led an aborted mutiny against Russia's armed forces in June. Did he? Did he? It was reported for 18 hours that he did, but in reality, he didn't. And everything was okay. And then he was with Putin's buddy, Lukashenko, in Belarus like the next week. And I can't believe the BBC actually printed the next sentence. But however, some experts in Russia and abroad suggest the revolt was staged and Prigozhin abandoned his justice march on Moscow after direct orders from President Vladimir Putin. So when this story came out, everyone was like, oh, what is going to happen? Prigozhin just got shot down. Putin must have been getting him back for that coup that he tried to stage. And all sorts of theories began springing up, many of them to be found right in the mainstream media from the authoritative sources because they didn't know. And when you tell someone like me something like that, I'm not only going to believe the story you're telling, I'm going to start doubting elements of that story I had never doubted before. Because I don't believe there was a coup. There's no evidence there was a coup. There was just a story and then a bunch of other stories. And all of those later stories made the original story even more unlikely. And not only that, the original story came from all sorts of sources that have already provably lied about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. There have been so many lies about the reported Russia-Ukraine conflict, this quote-unquote war that's happening, that at some point you really have to start doubting the underlying facts of any of it. It's entirely possible that things you thought absolutely must be true may not be. And the thought process is this. Well, they've lied to me about all of these aspects, so I know I can't actually trust them on any of it. And then you think, oh, well, this thing still must be true. But you may notice really quickly that the only way you know that's true is by depending on those same sources you understand would lie about pretty much everything. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not true or that it couldn't be true. And it certainly doesn't mean that the opposite is true. It just means you have to maintain doubt over even facts at that foundational level. You should not accept that any of the story is true, and therefore, you should not base your beliefs about something so questionable. It should not lead your actions, the things you do, the things you say. And you'll generally be better off if you don't use that information as a basis 
for how you guide your interactions with people close to you. So after Prigozhin's reported death in this plane crash, we were immediately inundated with retrospectives on Prigozhin's life from authoritative sources, mainstream media outlets, headlines like this in The Atlantic. Yevgeny Prigozhin might have the last laugh. Oh, yeah, sure he will. Prigozhin is dead. The culture he represented lives on from Time magazine, New York magazine, the very Russian politics of Prigozhin's plane crash. Also from Time, what Prigozhin's death reveals about Putin's power in Russia. ForeignPolicy.com, Prigozhin's fate shows how hard evaluating Putin's strength is. These started popping up before Prigozhin was even confirmed dead. And then we eventually heard that DNA evidence confirmed that Prigozhin was dead. They identified all the bodies on the plane that crashed and they were all dead. And one of them was definitely Yevgeny Prigozhin. Now, all of that seemed absolutely nuts to me because we were only two months removed from an entirely fake Wagner coup against Russia. He was going to march on in there and attack Moscow. He was going to overthrow Vladimir Putin with something like 25,000 troops, even though Vladimir Putin commands ultimately hundreds of thousands. He was doing this because of various grievances, stories about how perhaps Russia might have killed some of the Wagner troops. And again, all of this was communicated to us by the people who have lied about the Ukraine war for well over a year and a half now. And to be honest, people who have lied to us about foreign policy and wars around the world for decades, it's all coming from the same places. And all of them want the war escalated. They want to make Putin look weak and look like he can be undermined and look like he's willing to kill anyone if he thinks that they're a real threat, which means that Putin thinks there are real threats and that that was a real threat. But the coup probably isn't real in the first place. And we don't really have a reason to believe the plane crash is real. We can't verify it. We're just being told a story by the news. Let's think about the elements of this story. Prigozhin was on the passenger list of a jet which crashed in Russia, killing all 10 people on board. Russia's Civil Aviation Authority says. Now, I see four elements in that one little idea, all of which must be true in order to accept this. One, Yevgeny Prigozhin was on a passenger list. Now, that already is different than saying he was on the plane because they can't verify he was on the plane, at least not at the time of this writing. But they do claim that he was on the passenger list. Do we know that he was on the passenger list? Have we seen an official passenger list? No, we don't. That means that we are referring to the authority of the BBC in order to accept that claim. Is that a wise move? No, it's not. That claim remains in doubt. Claim two, jet which crashed. Do we know a jet crashed? No, we don't. If they showed us pictures of a jet having crashed, would we then know? No, not really. That does not help. Is the picture real? Is the picture showing what they say it's showing? There's no way to know either thing. There were pictures of the ghost of Kiev. There were pictures of the soldiers on Snake Island. There were pictures of that woman holding her baby, running away from the maternity hospital. All of those stories were fake and false in multiple elements, and now virtually no one believes them. They're not true, and no one claims they are anymore. The ghost of Kiev was video game footage. Claim three, a plane crash killed all 10 people on board. How do we know that? Can we verify that? 
No, we can't. So should we just take BBC's word for it? I wouldn't. Leave it in doubt. Maybe it's true. I just don't have any reason to believe it from this. Russia's Civil Aviation Authority says, okay, so that means all of this stuff was told to the BBC by Russia's Civil Aviation Authority. Now, the BBC tells us all the time that nothing from inside Russia can ever be trusted. You don't listen to Russia's official government channels. They're all propagandists. That is what we are told by Western media all the time. But for this story, BBC is taking their word for it and saying that we should take their word for it as well. They are, in this case, the authoritative source. The BBC has verified from the Russian Civil Aviation Authority that the leader of a private mercenary group was on the passenger list of a plane that crashed, killing all 10 people on board. Next sentence. Social media linked to the Wagner mercenary group says his private plane was shot down by Russian air defenses. Social media linked to the Wagner mercenary group. Well, what is the link and why aren't they telling us? Is it someone in the private mercenary group's high command? Or is it just someone who occasionally gets information from them and seems like an inside source? The BBC doesn't tell us, so we can't know. So why should we believe this? As of right now, we have a totally anonymous source in the Russian Civil Aviation Authority, and we have a totally anonymous source from social media who is reporting just saying things to the public, not even directly to the BBC. And we're supposed to believe them when they say that this plane that may or may not exist with the passengers that may or may not be on it was shot down by Russia's air defenses. And we're supposed to believe that a telegram channel whose name is either a typo in the BBC article or not the actual news site Gray Zone telling us that Prigozhin died, quote, as a result of actions of traitors to Russia. A telegram channel they can't even correctly describe is now imputing a motive for a situation they haven't really substantiated at all. The next sentence, Prigozhin led an aborted mutiny against Russia's armed forces in June. Did he? The answer is almost certainly no, he didn't. And if he didn't, especially in the eyes of Vladimir Putin, then there's certainly no way that Russia's air defenses shot down his plane because he's a traitor. I don't have a reason to believe any element of this story. And I think we probably just went through eight or nine. Now, I would personally bias toward believing each and every one of those is false, but I would never assume they are because I don't know. I can't actually disprove any of these claims in full. I can point out inconsistencies and say one of these two things can't be true, which gets me down the path at least a little ways. I can bias toward each one of those elements likely being untrue because of the inconsistencies, because I'm considering the source, and then because all of those elements are in doubt and some pretty severe doubt, I know I'm probably making a strong bet to assume that the big story that relies on all of those nine elements or whatever is almost surely false. This BBC article is a poorly substantiated rumor at this point. And this is representative of virtually all of the coverage of Yevgeny Prigozhin's reported death. Now, there were stories released after that to buttress the case. The DNA evidence they say they have that I mentioned before. Comments from Vladimir Putin. 
But most of what we got in response were opinion pieces about what it all means with the assumption that the story is necessarily true. They take for granted that the story is true and that all the elements of the story are true. And then they try to construct the meaning for us, even though they haven't given us reason to believe the story is actually true. You can see pretty quickly at that point that the takeaway we're supposed to have is the meaning. They are telling us what this means and what it means for the future. What does this mean for the Russia-Ukraine conflict? What does it mean for Putin's grip on power in Russia? What does it mean that Putin feels Prigozhin was a real threat to him? And that's part of the trick. Because if the story falls apart entirely, most people are going to have a really hard time letting go of the meaning of the story because they've already incorporated it into their thinking. We were told the Russians were committing war crimes because they launched cluster bombs into that maternity hospital where the Instagram model with the baby was fleeing. But that wasn't true. And Ukrainian troops had actually based their operations out of that hospital. We were told Russia was committing war atrocities while it was Ukraine committing the war crimes. And then a year later, we hear that the fake president, Joe Biden, is going to send the same cluster munitions whose use, we're told, is a war crime over to Ukraine for the comedic actor and his brave Nazis to use. So that story about the maternity hospital can fall apart in full and people will still think of that as an element of Russian war crimes against Ukraine and will hold on to the meaning that they derived from all this. Russia is guilty of war crimes. And it turns out that Russia is guilty of war crimes is one of the counter arguments for them. When you bring up the fact that there is an 80 year history of Nazism in Ukraine and that they have Nazi battalions and that they were trained by our CIA, they say none of that's true because Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish and Russia has committed war crimes. The entire story can fall apart and they will still retain the meaning. Now, on the day that this Prigozhin death was reported, I asked on X Twitter, is this reported death of Yevgeny Prigozhin was very real or just as fake as the attempted coup? 88% of the 445 people who responded said it was just as fake. And that is the proper reaction when so many elements of the story are in doubt and when you're exercising extreme skepticism, which in my mind is the only responsible way to operate in this informational environment. Now, are there other reasons to doubt the story about the plane crash that killed Yevgeny Prigozhin? And it turns out that, yes, there are. In the wake of stories about his death, many outlets ran stories about Stories of his death in 2019. This is businessinsider.com on August 24th. Prigozhin was thought to have died in a 2019 plane crash only to reappear days later. This time there's more evidence he's dead. So the last time it was completely and totally fake, but this time there's more evidence than last time. So this time, even though the story's been totally wrong before, we should assume that they got it right. From the article, the case has strange parallels to news this week of Prigozhin's possible demise after a private jet that he was listed as a passenger. That's not really a sentence, but whatever. Crashed in Russia's Tver region outside of Moscow. 
His apparent death comes two months after he started an uprising that involved his forces taking a key Russian military base. Wagner's soldiers started to march toward Moscow before striking a peace deal with the Kremlin. They didn't take a base. There wasn't a battle. They just went there and hung out. However, there seems to be some more evidence this week compared to in 2019. Moscow's Civil Aviation Agency said Prigozhin was on board. A telegram channel associated with the group announced his death and his body was reportedly identified in a morgue. They note that some people are doubting his death. Keir Giles, Russia analyst at London-based Chatham House, told the Washington Post that, quote, until we know for certain it's the right Prigozhin, let's not be surprised if he pops up shortly in a new video from Africa, end quote, referring to the continent where the Wagner group is also active. <laughs> they were worried that we needed Africa identified for us, but they couldn't have been worried about that. So what were they really doing? They were inserting another narrative element into this story as an identifier for Africa. Africa in this context is now where the Wagner group is also active. These are the language tricks they use to make you believe certain things that they haven't proven at all. That is an assertion of another part of the official story. And as they insert it here as a part of this story, you assume, well, the other part must be true or they wouldn't be asserting it here for no reason. But we have a responsible London-based analyst who says, let's just leave this in doubt. We shouldn't be surprised if he pops up in Africa. Prigozhin is also a well-known purveyor of misinformation. He financed a troll factory that's accused of interfering with U.S. elections. Oh, isn't that incredible? And then the story immediately moves on to what all of this means. The headline tells us there's more evidence he's dead than in 2019, and they didn't provide any evidence that he's dead. They provided references to other claims made about his death while telling us that he's been reported as dead before and turned out not to be dead. Now, there's been some reporting in outlets like The Hollywood Reporter about how the Wagner Group is more or less a movie production company for propaganda films, aside from being a private army and the most brutal organization in the whole wide world. This is an article that they wrote on August 23rd before he turned on Putin. Yevgeny Prigozhin made Hollywood style propaganda films to sell his war. This is how they updated, by the way, the situation on his death. This appears at the top of the article. Update. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the former chief of the Wagner Group, is presumed dead after a plane he is said to have been aboard crashed on August 23rd, 2023, killing all 10 passengers, according to Russia's Civil Aviation Agency. So they're once again referencing the exact same source as all the other articles. Once one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's closest advisors, he had been sidelined after mercenaries under his command seized control of the southern Russian city of Rostov-on-Don on June 23, 2023, in the strongest challenge to Putin's presidency since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Was it a strong challenge to Putin's presidency? No, it was not. 
Did they seize control of the city? No, not really. There's no reason to believe any of that coup story. If it was true, it's really hard to believe that Prigozhin just ended up hanging out with one of Putin's strongest allies in Lukashenko just after, and nothing happened there. Putin waited two months, shot down the guy's plane, and the story is still loaded with doubt. But let's just hit a couple pieces of this article. Last October, a small Russian production company called Orum released The Best in Hell, a 107-minute feature film chronicling a brutal struggle for territory in an unnamed European city. The scenes of urban warfare are visceral and raw, and the only respite from the violence comes in the form of periodic tactical lectures aimed directly at the viewer. The setting for The Best in Hell is the current war in Ukraine. Online detectives seem to disagree about which of the war's recent battles the movie is based on. Some believe it's a recreation of the 2022 siege of Mariupol in the disputed Donetsk region, in which thousands of civilians perished in a three-month-long battle that the Red Cross later described as apocalyptic. Oh, that Red Cross. They're always taking so much money to totally save people's lives in disaster zones like Haiti. Others think it refers to the Battle of Papasna, where once the fighting had ended, the severed heads and hands of a Ukrainian prisoner of war were discovered impaled on a wooden pole. Released online, the movie received wide coverage and was lauded for its realism. The Best in Hell was shot, edited, and released while the actual combatants and survivors of the battles in Mariupol and Papasna, both of which ended last May with Russian victories, were still collecting and mourning their dead. Seen in that light, the most striking feature of the best in hell is that it exists at all. That a current event of such magnitude and tragedy was so quickly and seamlessly transformed into stylized movie fare is a feature of what former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster calls, quote, Russian new generation warfare. Other experts who study Russia have described this dynamic more simply hybrid war. Since coming into power in Russia two decades ago, Vladimir Putin has engineered a massive propagandistic operation that stretches across Russia's billion-dollar film and TV industry into a global network of state-run disinformation as journalism and onto the mysterious online world of right-wing mercenary worship known as the Wagnerverse. Mason Clark, the Russia team lead at the Institute for the Study of War in Washington, D.C., notes that as Putin's global influence operations have expanded over the past two decades and his intentions to restore both the landmass and the stature of the former Russian empire have become clearer, quote, the pool of assets engaged in national security, end quote, has grown in tandem to encompass, quote, all of Russian society, including government, business, culture, and media institutions. And we don't have anything like that here in the USA, where our media tells us the truth. Our entertainment industry would never produce propaganda and our government would never lie to us about war. Skipping down a bit. Aside from Putin himself, no one has emerged as a more powerful force in Russia's information war than Prigozhin. His transformation from petty criminal and prisoner to warlord and movie producer is emblematic of the twisting contours of the hybrid war. Born in 1961, Prigozhin was raised in St. Petersburg, 
In early 1980s, he was convicted of armed robbery and fraud and spent nine years in a penal colony. After his release in 1990, he built a network of construction and food catering companies and soon racked up an impressive array of prominent clients in the worlds of politics and business, including the soon-to-be president, Vladimir Putin. A savvy political operator, Prigozhin cultivated the relationship and earned a spot in Putin's inner circle, along with the nickname Putin's chef. Behind the scenes, Prigozhin worked quietly to advance Putin's agenda. In 2014, he created the Wagner Group, a private army of roughly 1,000 mercenaries. That year, he sent them into battle alongside the Russian army in support of Putin's illegal annexation of Crimea. And just in that sentence alone, they are already accepting the official story from the central narrative from the global regime about Crimea. Does Crimea want to be part of Russia or part of Ukraine? The answer is part of Russia. Same as the Donbass. In 2019, Prigozhin began producing blockbuster war movies. The heroes of many of his feature films are based on the mercenaries he controls with Putin's support in Russian-sponsored military activities across the globe. Prigozhin's films are a slicker, higher-octane version of the so-called Boviki movies of the late 90s, cheap Rambo-style action flicks that, all available evidence to the contrary, somehow managed to spin the Soviet Union's inglorious defeat in Afghanistan in 1989 as a triumph. And man, I hope we weren't lied to about that. Wagner Productions further Russia's current objectives, subverting the successful Hollywood action movie trope and casting the Russians in the role of, quote, the good guys, uncovering evil plots and foiling the rapacious appetites of a succession of evildoers who invariably look and act like American capitalists. It's the Boviki model, but with more money and more Hollywood inspiration, says Marlene Laruel, who directs the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University and who has studied Wagner extensively. And the article is quite long. It's a good read. As long as you understand that you should doubt every word in it and consider that the opposite may well be true throughout the entire article, you can learn quite a lot about what's actually happening based on what they tell you as long as you're able to spot where they seem to be lying or attempting to manipulate you emotionally or using indirect language. While the contours of Russia's information operations will to some extent be influenced by palace intrigue in Moscow, there is little doubt that the propaganda war will continue to expand. In March, for the first time since the war in Ukraine began, Putin ventured out from Moscow toward the front lines. He toured Mariupol, one of the possible settings for the best in hell. The day before, the International Criminal Court in The Hague had issued an arrest warrant for Putin on charges of war crimes. And the visit to Mariupol had all the trappings of a propaganda coup. Since then, he has taken several more trips to disputed areas close to the Russian front. I can't believe the International Criminal Court hasn't gotten him yet. Drat, foiled again. Wagner's atrocities on the battlefield, refashioned into heroics in movies like The Best in Hell, have helped earn Prigozhin high approval ratings in national polls. <laughs> Gosh, man. I mean, who's polling that? With every death of a Wagner mercenary, Prigozhin's own ambitions seem to grow. 
In recent weeks, he has maneuvered to become one of Russia's most powerful political figures, using his platform to excoriate top Russian generals as scoundrels and lambasting Putin's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, for failing to provide Wagner soldiers with ammunition and supplies. But, but he was still going to go attack Moscow and overthrow Vladimir Putin. He couldn't get enough ammo and supplies, but was going to go overthrow Putin. You get it? You get it? It's all true. You get it? He has openly taunted Russian officers engaged in fighting elsewhere that they need to follow the example set by Wagner mercenaries if they hope to, quote, save face with Putin. In early March, he took aim at Shoigu's son-in-law, accusing him of being a peacenik and vacationing in Dubai. Oh, how dare he? What palace intrigue we are witnessing. It's like the real housewives of Mariupol. Some have speculated that Prigozhin has become so powerful as to pose a direct threat to Putin himself. Prigozhin recently declared that he would transform Wagner, once little more than a ragtag group of mercenaries, into a full-fledged, quote, army with ideology. During the battle for Bakhmut, in a March speech delivered against a backdrop of Wagner corpses, Prigozhin threatened to withdraw his soldiers entirely and hinted at even more drastic moves, strange for an army with no ideology. He reversed course a day later after extracting a promise from the Russian Ministry of Defense for more ammunition. Having secured this new arrangement with the Kremlin, Prigozhin announced that his soldiers had been authorized to act as we see fit. In late May, Wagner's troops broke the brutal, bloody stalemate and declared victory in Bakhmut. So far, no movie has been announced. So I guess Putin learned his lesson and began giving them all the ammunition they could ever need particularly while viewing Prigozhin as a direct threat to his own power. So in addition to all of the elements of the story remaining in doubt, we are also dealing with a man who has been reported dead before and not been dead. A man who is essentially a movie producer for war-based propaganda films and a man who we're told was also the guy directing the Internet Research Agency. You know, that Russia troll farm that totally cost Hillary Clinton the 2016 election. We are supposed to believe all of that. Now, because all of that is preposterous, I choose not to believe any of it. And then it makes me doubt elements of the story even further down, maintaining even a more extreme degree of skepticism. I had the thought last week when the chatter online and in the news, including in Tucker Carlson's interview of Donald Trump about the potential that there may be an assassination attempt on Donald Trump at some point in the future when they realize that the indictments aren't going to stop him, that it would be rather appropriate in this strange world we live in to find out that Yevgeny Prigozhin is not in fact dead, which would then subconsciously tune everyone's mind into the idea that even these assassination stories could be faked. It connects in people's mind the possibility that there might be assassination attempts on Donald Trump and the idea that these big media driven stories about assassinations could be entirely based on nothing. 
And that matters because we're talking about people, the regime and their media mouthpieces who have spent years trying to seed the narrative of civil war in this country, that at some point those MAGA extremists are going to go out and get violent. They're going to get pushed over the edge and the whole country is going to erupt in chaos and violence, bloodshed in the streets. Now, if you see that as a possibility, you might think, what would be the most dramatic thing they could possibly do in order to cause that? Well, the answer is the assassination of Donald Trump. And the thing you should wonder immediately, if we ever see a story like that, is not what should we do? It's, is that really true? Really, in eight plus years of Donald Trump being on the national stage in politics, is this really the first time they've attempted to assassinate him? Well, probably not. And we didn't hear a thing about it any of those times. So now we hear about an assassination attempt and we're just going to assume that's true. I'm not going to because I pay attention to all of this stuff and I have conditioned myself to exercise extreme doubt in all of these situations. But a whole lot of people probably haven't and might immediately think, oh, no. And if all they're getting in their feed is a string of the same story from all of the media outlets, all believing that Donald Trump is actually dead, then what is going to give them cause to doubt it? If they are still tied into the central narrative, their first inclination is not going to be to doubt that and wait for more facts to come in and see if the story is really true. Their first inclination is to think, oh no, what do we do? When talk of a potential Trump assassination and talk of Evgeny Prigozhin's supposed assassination connect in my mind, I think, wait till we hear Prigozhin didn't actually die. And let's see how that makes people think about these assassination stories in the future. If you don't want people to believe immediately in an assassination story from an authoritative source, the most effective way for that to happen is through people understanding that these assassination stories are not always correct, even if they are confirmed afterward and believed for days on end. And here's why. I mentioned it yesterday. The Daily Mail ran a story. 24 hours ago, with the headline, Yevgeny Prigozhin is alive and plotting his revenge on Putin after body double was killed in plain assassination plot, Russian analyst claims. Okay, so this is a Russian analyst saying this. This is not information that's been confirmed by the Daily Mail or any other outlet. This is just one person saying what he believes, and now they are reporting it. The first question you should ask is why are they reporting another unsubstantiated story to counteract the unsubstantiated story they all ran with last week? You got to suspect it's because they want to create some doubt in that unsubstantiated story from last week so that when people find out it wasn't true, they'll already understand and feel like they were ahead of the game. Oh, I already knew that that might not be true, so it's no big deal. They told me that and then told me how to think of it, and I've already incorporated the meaning into my belief system about the world. A Russian political analyst has claimed warlord Evgeny Prigozhin is alive after his body double was killed in last week's plane crash, not the Wagner chief himself. Prigozhin is, quote, alive, well and free. 
in an unnamed country, according to Dr. Valery Solove, even as Russia stages his funeral, which Vladimir Putin is refusing to attend. Think about what we're being told here. A political analyst claimed warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin is alive after his body double. So now it wasn't him. Maybe he was on the list, but it was his body double in the crash. This guy says he knows this. It wasn't Prigozhin. He's alive, well and free in an unnamed country after we've already been told by another Russia analyst that he might appear in a week alive in Africa. And they had a funeral for him anyway that Putin did not go to. Now, if Prigozhin's not dead, then the staged funeral really was a staged funeral. And there's no way in the world we should ever expect Vladimir Putin to attend a fake funeral. The astonishing assertion holds that Prigozhin cheated an assassination bid sanctioned by Putin and drawn up by his security council. So Putin was trying to kill him, but failed. Prigozhin is now plotting his revenge, says the political analyst, a former professor at Moscow's prestigious Institute of International Relations, a training school for spies and diplomats. And it's worth noting that one of their alumni is none other than Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. Dr. Solovey accuses the Russian authorities of lying over Prigozhin's DNA being found at the crash site in the Tver region while being aware the bid to kill the Wagner Supremo had failed because a body double, which the warlord was known to use, got on the plane in his place. So the body double got on the plane, the plane got shot down, but all of this story still depends on A, the story being real, and B, Putin being motivated to kill Prigozhin because he was mad about the attempted coup that really didn't happen, at least certainly not as reported. First, the plane in which Yevgeny Prigozhin was supposed to fly was downed by a Russian air defense system, he said, challenging U.S. intelligence claims that the plane was destroyed by a blast on board. So U.S. intelligence disagrees with all the other many reports. There was no explosion on board. It was downed from the outside, he says. The secret operation to carry out this strike quote was developed in the Security Council and was sanctioned personally by the Russian president. Solovey asks, if you believe the official statements of the Russian authorities, then what can I say? Well, wait a second. The report that the plane crashed in the first place was a statement from the Russian Civil Aviation Authority. But you just said not to trust them. Are we only supposed to not trust them some of the time? I mean, what is going on here? Dr. Solovey said he would reveal Prigozhin's supposed country of exile early next month, but denied it was in Africa where the Wagner private army has multiple interests. So is Prigozhin alive or dead? Is this story just as fake as the Wagner coup story or is it very real? Well, it's really hard to say, isn't it? As far as I'm concerned, knowing what we know, I would say that it's more likely he's alive and that the assassination never took place. At minimum, he wasn't on the plane. If there was a plane, if the plane was taken down and if he was on the passenger list, we don't know any of those things. We don't know if he's dead. We don't know if he's alive because of these two stories coming out and the amount of doubt involved. 
it seems most reasonable to go back to the status quo ante, the way things were before. Our understanding prior to any of this was that he was alive, so we would bias toward him being alive. But then you think about it with extreme skepticism and you say, wow, I don't know if this guy is dead or alive. I do know that he is reported to be the most brutal mercenary warlord leader ever in history, as brutal or maybe more brutal than these Ukrainian Nazis. His nickname is Putin's chef because he used to run a catering company. He's also a movie producer for war propaganda movies that are being filmed about the war that is currently taking place. He was also running a Russian troll farm that won Donald Trump the 2016 election, and he has been pronounced dead before, but wasn't dead. Let's go back to the description of him in The Hollywood Reporter. His transformation from petty criminal and prisoner to warlord and movie producer is emblematic of the twisting contours of the hybrid war. Born in 1961, Prigozhin was raised in St. Petersburg. In the early 1980s, he was convicted of armed robbery and fraud and spent nine years in a penal colony. After his release in 1990, he built a network of construction and food catering companies and soon racked up an impressive array of prominent clients in the world of politics and business, including the soon-to-be president, Vladimir Putin. Now, what an interesting story. What an interesting life this man must have led. Just a crazy story. It's almost hard to believe. And to me, to be honest, it kind of sounds like Dr. Evil's backstory. Details of my life are quite inconsequential. Oh, no, please, please. Let, let's hear about your childhood. Very well. Where do I begin? My father was a relentlessly self-improving boulangerie owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet. My father would womanize, he would drink, he would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. Sometimes he would accuse chestnuts of being lazy, the sort of general malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. My childhood was typical. Summers in Rangoon, luge lessons. In the spring, we'd make meat helmets. When I was insolent, I was placed in a burlap bag and beaten with reeds. Pretty standard, really. At the age of 12, I received my first scribe. At the age of 14, as a roastery named Vilma, ritualistically shaved my testicles. There really is nothing like a shorn scrotum. It's breathtaking. I suggest you try it. What can I say? I really enjoy Austin Powers quotes. And if you're going to give me such a ridiculous backstory for someone I don't know and have never met and never will meet, I'm going to exercise extreme skepticism. And so once the story of Prigozhin's great escape the claim that he is still alive emerged in the media yesterday. It was just another extraordinarily odd element of an extraordinarily odd story. And when that happens, when every element of a story is in doubt, when I can't believe that any part of the story is definitely true, I begin to think about the elements further down and wonder if any of those are true. 
And one of the first elements of the story you would have to doubt if you are exercising extreme skepticism is, is Yevgeny Prigozhin a real person in the first place? Does he exist? Now, I'm not claiming he doesn't exist. I'm claiming we can't verify that element either. And when you can't even verify that the man ever existed, it is completely and totally irrational, if not insane, to think that a war might be escalated as a result of his assassination. That seems to me to be absolute madness, but nonetheless, it is exactly what all of the authoritative sources in the mainstream media are telling people they should believe. It's the meaning they should extract from this story. And because they've already processed all those potential meanings and chosen their favorite one, when the story comes out that he's not dead, and again, I don't know, but there sure is a story. When the story comes out that he's not dead, they'll say, Oh, well, that's fake news. Everybody knows that he is dead. Look how many sources I can provide you. See, they've got DNA evidence. All of those elements that are completely and totally in doubt or should be are now accepted as fact because this news story must be fake news. Therefore, all the other parts of the story must be more true. And no matter what, the meaning that we are extracting has to be true. I must feel the right way about this thing. Because the way I feel about this thing has led me to say and do things and probably treat people in certain ways. And so the true or false of all of it goes right out the window. The fact that you can't trust a single element of the story no longer matters because the meaning you have taken from the story absolutely has to be true because now you have something riding on it, including your basis for trusting the authoritative sources in the first place. Now, I expressed this sentiment online yesterday after this story came out, and I said, to be clear, I have no idea if Yevgeny Prigozhin ever existed in the first place. And most people were like, yeah, this whole story is nuts. I don't believe any of it. In my mind, that's the most reasonable and rational possible reaction to have. But then some people got upset. They said, how can you say that he's not real? What evidence do you have to back that up? I'm like, what? I didn't say he wasn't real. I said, I don't know if he is because I don't know. I'm being honest about a fact in the world. I have no idea if the guy exists or not. Could he be a years long story that the media or Russian propaganda has told me? Yeah, a hundred percent. It could. He's a warlord running a mercenary army, but also a movie producer after he ran the Russian troll farm that overthrew Hillary Clinton's election win in 2016. You're telling me that is a real person? I mean, I can't say he's not, but gosh, what a pretty unique character that would be. The same people who told us dead are now reporting that he might be alive and already reported that other experts believed he would turn up alive. The entire story is unbelievable. And I'm the jerk for saying, you know, I don't even know if this guy's real. Nah, sorry. That's not how it works. Could this guy just be CGI? Absolutely. He could be. Could he be a guy with a Hollywood style mask and makeup job being used purely as a propaganda device? Of course he could. In Austin Powers, the actor and comedian Mike Myers plays himself. He plays Dr. Evil. He plays Fat Bastard. 
and he plays a character named Goldmember. All in the same movie, he's four of those guys, and they all look pretty different. It's real easy to make someone look a certain way with a mask and makeup on. Now, am I saying that he's an actor or a clone that Prigozhin's made up or CGI? No, because I don't have any evidence of that either. But I'm not just going to pretend a character this strange with a story this strange where no one can get any element of the story confirmed is definitely a real guy. And people think, oh, that's crazy. This sounds like a conspiracy theory. This is bullshit, man. And I just got to ask you, why? Haven't we heard plenty of times about Saddam Hussein's body doubles in this story about Prigozhin? It is suggested that Prigozhin has a body double. Body doubles aren't anything new. We've been hearing about body doubles forever. Does Hillary Clinton have a body double? People think so. Do I know? Of course, I don't know. Does Joe Biden have a body double? What is Joe Biden? He doesn't look anything like the old Joe Biden. Some people think he has a mask on. Some people think it's an actor. Some people think it's body doubles. I can take Joe Biden at face value while still understanding that there should be a healthy portion of doubt about just who and what that is. The fake president doesn't look anything like Joe Biden looked 10 or 15 years ago. Is it plastic surgery? Like they say, hey, maybe it is. But it's not like I'm the first person to notice this. Everybody thinks it's strange. But because we're all told it's crazy to even question something like this, no one does, which means they can just throw these fastballs right past you all day. We have people in the real world who pretend they can't tell the difference between men and women, and they will express that belief because the authoritative source tells them to say that. While at the same time, we have men pretending to be women and entire industries built up around trying to convince everyone else that they really are. I would love to live in a world where this stuff actually was crazy, but we don't live in that world. We live in the real world where we are being manipulated all the time for a reason. A world in which people have been convinced to ignore their own sensory experiences and the words of people who love them in favor of CNN and the experts and whatever pops up in your Apple News notifications. And it's crazy to doubt whether someone with that backstory even exists. Now, it's possible that might make people uncomfortable with their view of what's real and fake in the world, but it doesn't have to. You can still understand what's real. Just don't believe the media. Even their basic claims can be falsified. They lied to you about a pandemic. They lied to you about an election. They've lied to you about the very war that represents the only reason you ever heard about Yevgeny Prigozhin in the first place. It is absolutely rational and reasonable to doubt the existence of a character like this. I'm not claiming that Yevgeny Prigozhin never existed. I'm not claiming that at all. But it's at least worth keeping an open mind about it. We have no evidence of any of it except that which we have received from authoritative sources. And we are believing it only because they've said so. And because other people believe these sources to be authoritative, so they believe the story and then they'll tell you that you're crazy if you don't believe the story. But you're not the crazy one. They're the crazy ones for believing this story that they can't prove at all when it's coming from people they know they know have lied to them over and over and over and over and over again about really, really important things. 
We should be skeptical about absolutely everything at this point. There is absolutely nothing crazy about skepticism. Don't make the opposite claim and don't let people call you crazy. Just say, hey, I don't know that and you don't know that either. I don't know why you're acting so confident that this thing is true when there's no way that you can prove it. And all the people giving you that information can't be trusted. Why do you believe something? And why is it so important to you that I believe something? I mean, maybe it's true that one of us is crazy, but I'm going to bias toward thinking that it's you because I saw you wearing a mask in your car. And all of this is why I love the quote unquote crazy plane lady. And if you're not familiar, I am going to play the audio from a pretty incredible viral video that I think now represents the greatest meme of our current point in history. Now, on the Internet, this viral video is referred to as crazy plane lady. But as far as I'm concerned, that lady's not that crazy. There's a lot of stuff right now that's not real. I mean, I don't know what she was looking at. I don't know what she was talking about. I hope those people on the plane didn't die. I don't think they did. I feel like we would have heard about that. But since then, they've released an apology video from a woman who looks like her that they're saying is her. Do I know it's her? Of course I don't know it's her. The whole thing is absolutely insane. I don't know if any of it's real. It could have all been staged. But I do know that I think it's hilarious and that I love it. And it's a lot of fun to post that woman saying that MFR is not real. Because right now, in an age of constant censorship, propaganda, and psychological operations... It's worth at least considering that most things aren't. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash imyourmoderator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range. It's high noon.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!